I'm Damon. I'm Kiss. And One Million Experiments is a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create wellness and protection in a world without presence and police. We're two Chicago-based podcast hosts and movement workers, and we're so excited to be jumping into this brand new project, talking with movement workers from all over this land about the work they're doing to enact different versions of what our world can look like. How do we take care of each other? How do we build systems of care, wellness, and protection? And how do we make the violent structures that we live under obsolete? In this time where abolition is becoming much more popular in discussion and in discourse, it's important that we move it from the abstract and theoretical and move towards concrete practice as a grounding to explore and to continue to imagine. And we are excited to be in conversation and in relationship with folks all over this land who are working to create new possibilities today. In, in much of the work we do, we've been in conversation about a world without prisons or police. And so often people ask, what is the other thing we're going to have? And the truth is we don't need one new thing. We need a million experiments in which we will practice and learn to create the systems and the world that we want. Damn, Damn, I love that. That's awesome. I love that idea. Did you come up with that? No big borrowing over here. Stole it from the big homie. (laughs) And so we are excited to be in partnership and collaboration and actually to be experimenting ourselves. And we want to do that in collaboration as all of our experiments must be. So we are excited to be partnering with One Million Experiments as a project created by Interrupting Criminalization. We have one of the masterminds behind the project here who's going to be our thought partner and collaborator throughout this podcast. We're joined here on this first episode, Let's Set the Table with Eva Nagao. Let's maybe start with how you understand, you know, podcast aside, this One Million Experiments project. What is it and what has it been up until now? Well, thank you, Damon and Daniel, for inviting us to the table. We're happy to be here um, and I'm happy to be here. One Million Experiments is, is an experiment. It's one of Miriam Kaba's latest experiments. But One Million Experiments really started as a Google Doc, um, as so many abolitionist projects did. They started as a Google Doc of Miriam Kaba's, a long list of just things that she was picking up, seeing in the news, talking to people about, about ways that people were creating safety and wellness in their communities, how they were answering the question of how do we create safety in our community um, all over the United States and, and all over the world, really. You know, periodically, Miriam will tell me about these Google Docs that she has. And, you know, it was sitting around last year when organizers and activists and folks were coming to interrupting criminalization um, amidst the 2020 uprising saying, well, you guys do this stuff. You've been thinking about this stuff for a while. What are, you know, the quote unquote alternatives to the police for these organizers who are clamoring to defund police. We really try to step away from the word alternatives, and we really don't want to put forth the idea that there is any one-size-fits-all alternative to these death-making institutions that we're trying to replace as abolitionists. But we did have this Google Doc full of damn good ideas. And so we wanted to share it with folks, um, and that took the form of a website that's a little bit of an encyclopedia of the projects that we've been collecting over time. 
um, and also a zine series that's going to go in depth to projects that shows really the nuts and bolts of how people get community-based safety strategies off the ground and running where they are. The idea is that people can come to the site and share their projects and ideas. Um, You know, really all are welcome to do that. And also that people can come there for inspiration and ideas about what they can enact in their own communities. Um, And that usually isn't going to mean a replica of an exact project somewhere else, but there are a lot of ideas that are replicable um, from within, you know, this hopefully someday actually 1 million projects that we're collecting. Um, We're not anywhere near that number, but we're hitting the ground running in October of this year, featuring a lot of projects in Minneapolis. And we're going to be adding, I hope, for years to come. I was blown away the first time I saw the site by what an amazing resource it was. And that existed before, I think, either of us had any idea of turning this into a podcast. Um, Because, like you said, so many of us were confronted with those questions sometimes in good faith and sometimes in bad faith of like, well, what do you want? And and here was not an abstract answer. It was here are things that already exist. And what we want is for those things, as you'll hear later in the episode, to be supported, funded, and looked to as viable systems of communities taking care of each other. So like you mentioned, between the website and the zine, you get kind of the nuts and bolts of what these projects are, where they exist, who are the players behind them. And then with this podcast, we're really excited to get into the how and why of the work that people are doing. So on each episode, we're going to be talking with a different experiment and getting into where the ideas came from, how they see it fitting in to the environment around them, and what they're envisioning this experiment to shape toward. What are their hypotheses? What are their findings? And and what do they hope uh, they'll be learning and being able to pass on to other people doing this movement work across the land and around the world? Does that sound right? That sounds just about right. I'll add, you know, something that's been emerging um, in conversation with thought partners like Ergo, like yourselves, is that, you know, part of this is really making work more transparent, making the labor behind these things that we're we're creating, this world that we're building together more transparent. Um, And I think, too, making these conversations more public. It's the conversations we have to have if we're going to build the one million experiments that we need. So as we go in and listen to this conversation and so many more, we want to encourage folks to be courageous, to make room for themselves to experiment and fail. And not only do we want to replicate what is already being experimented and practiced, but if I'm not mistaken, last I looked at the website, we're not quite at a million yet. So (laughs) we don't just have to be excited about the, the practices that are already emerging. If nothing else, be encouraged to imagine and to create yourselves your own experiments going forward, because that is the culture and that is the ecosystem that we need to build. So with no further ado, welcome to One Million Experiments. We're kicking off the podcast with an interview with Miriam Kaba. Miriam goes deeper into where this framing of experiments comes from, some of the patterns and misunderstandings and misconceptions that she's seeing in the ways that this work is being framed and what she hopes this documentation and exploration of these experiments will offer to both us as practitioners and to listeners all over the place. Let's get into it with Miriam Kaba. Let's start with the same two-part question that for years we've been making people answer. Miriam, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? 
Well, um, I think the world is about to treat me great because I am taking my first real break in over a year. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm super exhausted, so it'll be a good time, I think, to have a break. And how am I treating the world? I think right now I'm trying to hold it in with some grace as I'm kind of dealing with back-to-back meetings and being pulled in a million different directions. Since people know I'm taking a significant break, um, everybody's asking for something right now. So I'm trying to stay graceful through that process. Mm. So you mentioned it's the first break in a year. I'd imagine it's been quite a year. And and I'm thinking about the last time that we had the chance to talk was almost exactly a year ago. Over the last year, how has your response to that question uh, of what are we going to replace policing with changed? If it has. Maybe I, I should start with my complete antipathy for the use of the term alternatives to policing. For a very long time, I've been asked, of course, because I'm an abolitionist, people will say, well, what do we replace the prisons with? And what do we replace police with? And it's a question that I know is coming from a good place and a place where people are trying to grasp and understand ideas. But what it suggests is that there's going to be one thing that's created that will replace death-making institutions. And I always say to folks when they ask me that question, I say, well, nothing will. No one thing will. Part of where, why we're in the situation we're in right now is because we offer kind of a one-size-fits-all response to every single possible kind of harm in the world through this criminal punishment system, which we're told is actually synonymous with justice. Instead of using a term, for example, like so-called alternatives, let's actually say what we mean. Because I think what people are asking, in my opinion, is like, what community-based safety strategies or what community-based responses to harm are we going to employ? And if that's true, I want to say that community-based safety responses and strategies are already the mainstream. That's already what we use. The vast majority of people don't actually use the current criminal punishment system as their response when they are harmed or when harm occurs in their communities. The issue is that community-based safety strategies and responses are unfunded. We should be calling it just the unfunded responses. All the energy, all the resources are being put into a system that very few people actually use and that when people do use it, their satisfaction rates are abysmal. Just the the, the Yelp reviews. For baseline, it's like... <laughs> the Yelp reviews for the criminal punishment system are horrendous. They're horrendous on the side of the people who are harmed and they're horrendous on the side of the people who are the people who are being supposedly quote unquote held accountable. So that's why, you know, in part, like, I don't like terms like alternative to prison or alternative to police or replacement, because oftentimes what it also does is it conditions us 
to keep prison and police constant in our minds. So adding the word alternative in front of death-making institutions means that people will start from the question of, don't we need police to be safe? And then what you what you think to yourself is, what do we currently use prisons and police for that we now need to replace their use for? When we use prisons and police for a bunch of things that we shouldn't even bother to address, and we don't use them for other things that we should probably address. And so I like to really like start with like the question of what is safety for our communities? What are like the conditions that will increase safety for everyone? And that abolitionists are always trying to ask generative questions that don't actually foreclose possibility and imagination, you know, because I think if we don't start here, it's hard to go to experiments, quote unquote. You know, it's really hard to think outside of your current structures, you know, because those structures are what you're used to. That's the norm. And then to have to rethink everything when people use those terms. Well, how do you do that when you're swimming in the toxicity of the current systems? And so I think that's why I want us to try to figure out if we can not hold the things constant that we actually want to destroy. These words have so much cultural meaning and so much social meaning you know, the cops are in our heads and hearts, like Paula Rojas says, right? Like, it's very hard. And so I, I want us, especially for this project, to start at the much more expansive level of what is safety for our communities, and then go from there. I am amazed by how simple and comforting that is, but how also discomforting that is for people sometimes that that are struggling or have not yet had the space to you know to operate in this realm of idea of what what I hear you saying right is that we just need to build more structure for what is and what has been which is actually a much less daunting task uh than like we need to the jetsons create some new machinery that like humans have not yet fathomed and so like a a language that's been coming more and might just be where things are nationally is around infrastructure. The ways in which human beings relate to each other already have healthy established patterns that we can build from. And we just don't have an investment in the infrastructure to maintain and sustain those connections. So yeah, I'm comforted by that. And I'm kind of tickled by like when you try to explain that to some people who are struggling, how kind of disorienting that can be. And we're going to do this a couple of times through this conversation and throughout this show. I have to be transparent. So I'm big on metaphors and we're about to be talking about experiments and I'm going to be trying my best to use a bunch of metaphors, but I cheated on all my science homework from about age ninth grade. So <laughs> I'm going to be like Googling and making sure I'm not loose and sloppy with my metaphors. But what, what, what I hear you saying is like, when we use the language of alternative, we are are recentering or stabilizing the the carceral state as the center or the norm mm-hmm. or the control, right? And so, like in hearing that, I'm hearing like cops aren't the control for how we want to evaluate the ways in which human beings interact and engage with each other. Absolutely, yes. And feel free to fact check my metaphors, no. listeners, and Daniel and Miriam. But that's that's where I'm starting off. Cops aren't the control. That's right. <laughs> well, also, it's like everything that we do can't just be in opposition to the thing we're trying to dismantle and destroy. 
trust me, for the last 20 years, I hear the question, you know, again, but don't we need police to be safe? Well, you've already kind of answered the question for yourself. You've already like foreclosed any other possibility to actually exist. This is part of the put alternative in front of something like a death-making institution. No, no, we don't want that. Here's an odd metaphor that I might cut out if it doesn't land. You ready? Yes, go for it. So when you get frozen yogurt, (laughs) you have your, what is framed as the base flavor, the yogurt flavor. Yes. And then everything, you're just, all the alternatives are just the pieces that get added on on top. But what, what we're saying is that base flavor tastes like trash, which is honestly how I feel about frozen yogurt also. I don't like the tart yogurt flavor. I'll go with vanilla and, and strawberry any day of the week. Um, but what we're saying is that it's not uh, building off of the structure we already have. And it's not how do we add pieces to that uh, to that central disgusting flavor. Basically. Yes, we're questioning the frozen yogurt because actually the frozen yogurt, when you eat it, that base, it makes you sick. Mm. Which has happened to me with frozen yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> shout, out, shout out my Froyo heads out there. All right. <laughs> so, so yeah, like you've gone to the store because like there's only in this place where you're looking for things, the only thing that's on offer is the frozen yogurt store. So you go to the frozen yogurt store thinking to yourself, like, I'm trying to, like, get my sweet tooth on. But the only store that's available within 100 trillion miles of your home is the frozen yogurt store that when you go there to get the base frozen yogurt, it always makes you sick because you're actually lactose intolerant. So you go in and you take your chance. You put that frozen yogurt into your bowl. And then because you get sick, you're like, "Mm." in order to mask the taste and all of the things that are happening, I'm going to put in all the toppings. I'm going to cover that shit up with everything. And then I'm going to eat it. And I'm going to see if I can handle it, if I can tolerate my lactose intolerance in spite of the fact that I have this frozen yogurt base that's killing me. That's the extension of the analogy. Ah, this is a great example of our new game. <laughs> extend the metaphor. Extend the metaphor. Extend the metaphor. <laughs> I, I want to go back to something that you said uh, before we started talking about frozen yogurt. You talked about this uh, Paulo Rojas quote of a uh, police live in our hearts and minds. We're talking about abolishing policing from process in every space. I'm curious, as you've started learning from, gathering, exploring these experiments that we're going to be talking to the practitioners of, what strategies have either you employed or have you seen other people employing to really directly acknowledge the ways that we internalize these processes and try to account for those as they're building their experiments? I think that when we're talking about the experiments or trying to write about them in the zine, um, you know, the questions we ask is, how is this particular um, experiment connecting to or interacting with law enforcement? You know, what's that particular project's theory of the case or theory of, you know, how, how they, why they exist and what they're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to do? You know, we want to take people for what they're actually trying to do and ask them what they think they're doing in the context within which they're located. A lot of these are hyperlocal experiments. They're happening in particular contexts. We don't want to decontextualize them. 
I think that will be helpful for other people who are listening and thinking about their own context and which parts might apply and which parts they can leave behind. Yeah, that really, I think, situates the time that that we're taking together. And so I want to get a little bit into the narrative from that place so we can set the table because, you know, this is a privilege to, to you know, share this space, not only because you're one of the most important thinkers of our time, but also because you will... <laughs> accommodate our metaphors more importantly. Um, I will will put up with your metaphors. (laughs) Robin Kelly wasn't having none of this shit. (laughs) Yeah, he was getting out of business. Robin Um, Robin doesn't get any sort of metaphors about frozen yogurt. I'll just say that. (laughs) Uh, but, But we are specifically having this conversation because we we are partnering in this project uh, with Interrupting Criminalization and One Million Experiments. So we're using this conversation with you to set us up for conversations with folks all over this land that are doing really exciting work. And before we get into that, I would like folks to just have a little kernel of, you know, what IC is um, and some of your uh, perspective and narrative on how these spaces came to exist mm-hmm. and kind of where they are now relative to this project. Sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Interrupting criminalization is actually my latest of a long line of my own projects, formations, my own experiments that I've been engaged in for most of my adult life and since I was a teenager, really. I was invited to be a researcher in residence at Barnard Center for Research on Women back in, I think it was 2017 or something like that. And um, my friend Andrea Ritchie was already there as a, a researcher in residence. Andrea and I have known each other for a while. Um, we met through uh, the work of Insight. Uh, women and trans people of color against violence in the mid 2000s. And we were talking about what do we want to be doing at this particular stage in our lives? We've both been organizing for decades at that point. And we had been part of many different kinds of formations and we've been doing work that overlaps and was different in other ways. And we just thought like, hey, you know how <laughs> Sean Puffy Combs had that <laughs> had that show called Making the Band? Do y'all remember that? Deeply remember. And yes. I can't believe that you're the one who brought him up. You have to go on. I know. I'm sorry I did, but I'm just saying. Let's not. Ex- this is a simple, specific metaphor. <laughs> this is not an opportunity for extension. Exactly. We're like, hey we could bring together people we respect to actually focus on the part of criminalization that we want to interrupt in particular that is centered on racialized gendered violence. And we can kind of, you know, bring together our various interests into uh, a formation that doesn't have to be long-standing, doesn't have to like have all this rigmarole. Neither of us were interested in creating a space where we would be like EDs or supervising other people. We just wanted to like do our work and combine our forces. So that's how interrupting criminalization started. And then long story short, One Million Experiments, starting last summer, 
as the uprisings were in full swing, probably around the time that I talked with you all, um, and defund police became us, you know, the central demand of many of those uprisings. I started getting emails and calls from organizers who were feeling pressured to offer these quote unquote alternatives to policing. My response to them was that they shouldn't feel pressured by the artificial urgency of these demands to offer so-called solutions or models or alternatives. The people with power asking were not promising significant resources. So to me, the questions were empty ones. I was cautioning our folks not to be rushed or pushed into offering so-called alternatives. It was perfectly acceptable to call for funding education, libraries, healthcare, parks, um, or to give people living wages. That's the quote friggin' alternative, you know? Like, <laughs> like actually fund the commons. Like that's the demand, right? Like, I don't know why you're all like freaking out that you don't have the perfect program already laid out when you've gotten literally zero dollars to make programs for the last 50 years, right? Like, so I was just like, okay, I hear the urgency, but the urgency is actually fake. And we don't have to be on their capitalist timeline. So that was my first response to the so-called alternative <laughs> question. <laughs> I, I, I love that. It, 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 what I hear and what I have felt from folks who ask those questions, not in good faith and not with sincerity, is that it is a setting us up to fail. It is. Not just to fail, actually. It's to try to say... There's no other thing. It's a reification of the hegemonic supposed behemoth of these institutions. Like there can be no alternative. Like it's <laughs> like, you know, it's like a, if you imagine like some sort of TV show where they have that tagline, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was what I felt was happening to organizers. They were being put into this like thing, like give us some stuff then. You all want this thing, then you have to do this. And I was like, don't go there. Like, don't fall for that. But the second aspect was that I have long been part of efforts to create community-based safety strategies and community-based responses to harms. So I knew that examples existed in every city and town around the country and, frankly, around the world. So I decided to start tracking the ones um, that I found most interesting in a Google Doc, (laughs) our dreaded Google Docs that came out of that period where everybody was putting everything in a Google Doc. Except that my Google Doc was not going to be public. It was just going to be, I would see an article or I would hear something and I would just look it up and maybe they had a website and I would keep track of it. I was just cataloging examples so that I could share them with other organizers in the trainings and workshops and meetings that I was part of in those months and in the months since. It was just going to be kind of like a compendium. And I started talking with Andrea and um, Eva from Interrupting Criminalization. At some point, somebody was like, you know, I don't know, you know, what's the replacement? And I was like, you know what? We need a million different experiments. Stop talking about the replacement. There's not one replacement. There have to be a million experiments that we're trying all the time, every day. I think it might've been Eva who said something like, 
oh, you know, I know you're keeping track of a bunch of this stuff. Maybe we should, you know, kind of put them in, in a place. And Eva's a genius, just a real creative genius. You know, I've known Eva for like maybe 15 years ago. I don't even remember. But, um, but we've been working together ever since in multiple kinds of configurations. But this is the first time we're actually working together in like a job work sense. We've always kind of just collaborated on various projects that we've not been getting paid for. Um, but anyway, so long story short is that that's the background of, of how it came to be. And Eva took these particular examples and made a website putting all those things together. And we talked about and came up with, because I'm obsessed with zines. Um, that's another show at another time. But I, I was like, let's make a series of, of zines that would take one of these particular examples and do like a little deep dive. How did these folks do what they are doing? How are they seeing their work? Yeah. So that's kind of the background on IC and the background on a uh, million experiments. So, you know, as the receiver of that work, it was so exciting to come across it. I'm curious, are there particular questions, themes, ideas that you would love to hear us talk about with the folks doing this work in all these different, very specific contexts? Hmm. I think I always have the same questions, no matter what. I want to know how people started, what's their origin story. I always want to hear about what was a surprise to them, what they're hoping to continue to do, and then what are they going to stop doing? What happened that was like, you know, we thought we were going to do this stuff, and boy, were we wrong. We needed to pivot and keep it moving. And I know every single person who has ever started any sort of initiative, program, organization has had those moments. Um, where you have your theory of change and you're like, this is how everything's going to go. And then you practice and you're like, uh-uh. I always think about, you know, when I started Project NIA um, in 2009, I came to the idea initially that we were going to be a site of diversion. We would create a space in my community that I lived in, in Rogers Park, where instead of the cops sending young people and children to, uh, juvenile court, we would be a site where they could divert those young people instead, because that was always the thing. Like there are no other places to send people. And so I was very excited about like that experiment and to see what might happen. What do you think happened? <laughs> What's your thought about what happened when we opened up as that kind of offer uh, to the community and specifically to the cops? Mm. Mm. Wow, so, I haven't. This, this is I'm, so much I'm, like school. <laughs> so, sorry, I'm a teacher. I, no, no, I love no, it. I, I love, love it. Because um, I want to be right. No, no, you don't want to be right. You want to come up with your response. Right. Okay. Um, I, I have a feeling that somehow, not just the cops in the state, but seemingly well-intended community members intervened in a way that reaffirmed that the state and punishment and carcerality needed to be central or not disconnected from the processes being built. I feel like I cheated, but that's... No, you didn't cheat. Okay. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good It's a good conjecture, right? Like, it, that might be the case. Well, 
what ended up happening is that in my hopes that there would be a place to, you know, have young people come instead of going through these other other steps of the system and getting further entrenched into those systems, what we ended up doing was actually widening the net. Because what ended up happening was that before the cops were in a position where if they picked up some kid, rather than go through a whole rigmarole, they would maybe arrest that kid and release them right away. This is just no way they're going to go through a whole process of charging that child, holding that child, putting that child back into the system. They have other things they're trying to do. It's not worth their time. They're just going to let you go with the warning. And instead, now that there was this community, quote unquote, resource, a bunch of kids who probably would never have been stopped in the first place or maybe would have been released with no record were being informally charged. Because now the cops were like, you are close to delinquent, or we think you might become delinquent. Here's predictive policing. So you need to go to this program to be able to, quote, intervene before you get to the part of being like a real hardcore criminal, young Black kid. So we ended up increasing a kid's contact with the system inadvertently by being there as a community resource for diversion. The complete opposite of what we were trying to do. We widened the net. And so, of course, I had to stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. But I had great intentions when I started. I had ideas. I had all my theories down of what was going to happen. And then, you know, a couple years in, we noticed this increase in informal station adjustments were like, "Mm, which also suggests that you should keep track of data. Data is flawed in multiple ways, but you want to be able to have some way to see if what you're doing is actually doing the things that you want to see happen in your community or not. So anyway, I just share that as part of the thing of like, I want to hear from people what their initial ideas were about what they were doing and whether they think those ideas actually have come to pass Or did they actually have the complete opposite effect of what they had hoped for in the beginning? Because we weren't kicking ourselves that that happened. We just were like, oh, we got to notice that it happened. And then we've got to stop it. Mm -hmm. It actually fits so perfectly with this experiment idea, right? Because that's, you don't fail if you don't receive the result that you thought you would. You just note that that's what those uh, components led to. And then you try to adjust and do something else to try to see what would happen in a different, you know, kind of set of ingredients being added in. To me, I'm a huge fan of failure. It's not a question of if we're going to fail, it's when we fail. If you're taking action, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to fail. And failure is not a bad word. If you're fearful of failing, that often can stop you from taking action But I much prefer taking action over not taking action. And also, like, how glorious is it to fail at something? Because then you have an opportunity to learn and move on to making something else informed by the so-called failure. You know, the capitalists are pro-failure. They create whole, like, special programs for their people about, like, if you're going to fail, fail big. (laughs) That because it means you're taking big risks, right? Like, and they do that in sometimes very harmful ways, but our ways of failure 
should also be within the same kind of concept of you should take risks and you should try lots of different kinds of things, knowing inevitably that failure is part of that. Like it's not a negative connotation. It shouldn't be. And it's not a moral thing. It's just that because I tried these ideas that I had in mind for an organization or a group or a formation in my community that I learned from the experience and we stopped doing what we were doing and we shifted and did some other things that did work much better and were generative in the community. I've been trying to uh, take the framework of biomimicry. Mm. Biomimicry is when you use you know, observations of natural biology, usually of other species or other organisms to, you know, shape and understand our social processes. That's that's how I understand it. You know, Adrian Marie Brown has really like done amazing work to kind of uh, help popularize or help people kind of, you know, apply it a little bit more. And so she goes to like birds and mushrooms in really beautiful ways. Um, and one thing I've been trying to do is like human biology. Like, how do we look at the way our actual body works to shape the way our like collective bodies work? And so to this language of failure, if we're talking about exercise or building literal strength in the body, the failure point is what you have to reach in order to like progress, right? And in order to actually grow. Like if you are not pushing yourself to some type of endurance or load failure, you're actually going to be like in stasis. I just thought about that as you were just, you know, going back into that that idea. So that really resonates. And I really appreciate that story. One, I don't feel like I've ever heard you share that before. No, I haven't. <laughs> this show. This yeah. <laughs> we show. get you. We Exclusive. Get you. <laughs> and to, to hear that reflection back a decade later, I think it's just a really important lesson from co-optation, which speaks to a question that I have. Some folks, we even have come up, become a little bit devout in ways that I really appreciate <laughs> about abolition. As we're looking at experimentation, does any cooperation with the carceral state disqualify as being considered an experiment? Do folks already need to have done some of the like somewhat difficult like consciousness struggle? relearning of history that usually, you know, is required for folks to be able to accept abolition? Or is there value in folks that may not be as like social movement radical as like we like to bolster or center in this notion of experimentation? And I want to like couple that with the teaching that you've done around abolitionist reform versus reformist reforms, because that is coming up to the head more. People are like internalizing that framework and get real like, yeah, like dismissive, me too, you know, uh, about things that we deem as easily co-optable or even well-intended, but hyper-reformist in how they relate to the state. Um, so like, for example, does a good organization doing a photo shoot or like a little softball game with the mayor and the cops disqualify them for being in conversation of, of what we're about to be researching? Wow, that's just such a good question, man. Here's what I would say about that. How are we going to get from where we are to where we need to go? And that's always what is intention. We're always struggling over that. Abolitionists are really interested in generative questions. That's a huge part of our kind of not just our ethos, but like our, our raison d'etre, you know, is like 
come up with better questions, come up with better questions, not struggling all the time with like, we have to come up with the perfect response, right? Like we're asking questions all the time because those questions are what will lead us forward um, to figure out what we need to know and what we don't know and all that stuff. So I always want to be like, are you asking yourself the questions all the time about whether you're trying to make reform your end or abolition your end? That will orient you as to whether or not you're in the right direction of the work. But also actually cooperating with law enforcement, like that is not going to actually get us to the point where we're trying to go. Ultimately, we're just trying to dismantle that institution. How are you going to dismantle that institution when you're giving them legitimacy? It's one of the reasons for why abolitionists shouldn't be on friggin' panels with the cops. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you arguing with them about? <laughs> right? Like, I think you shouldn't exist. Like, what is the what is the actual point of doing that? So I do think there are things that are kind of like no's that you're going to do that are pretty strong. But that's different from looking at a community organization where some of what they're doing is collaborating with the police. They may be doing other programs that have abolitionist possibilities embedded within those. And if you're partnering with those particular projects and programs as experiments, because you want to learn from them to see what could be taken from them to apply more broadly um, or taken from them to just apply more specifically to your context, you can always do that. Absolutely. But ultimately, we are trying to abolish these institutions. Period. Period. (laughs) I don't know what else to tell people. And it's like, Maybe you don't want that. And then you're not an abolitionist, right? You're not a PIC abolitionist, at least. And that's not about, quote, being purity or whatever. No, if there's anybody, I'm so willing to work with almost anyone to try to figure out how to lessen suffering. Our diversion program was essentially with the cops because we wanted them to not send our kids further along. But then I learned through the hard way that there was no way forward there because their mindset, their values, their raison d'etre, their, all of that was to actually capture our children and put them in programs or put them in the court or put them in jail. And, you know, Shira Hassan, a brilliant thinker around transformative justice and harm reduction, friend of mine, longtime friend and comrade of mine, always says, let's not get trapped in the safety as services paradigm. The first time I heard that, I was like, what? Oh my goodness. What is she really talking about here? And I finally figured that out when I was doing this work of the diversion project and program, because it was like, well, the cops were thinking of us as services, quote unquote, as safety. And meanwhile, they were capturing these children and forcing them into these spaces we did not need these kids to be captured at all. And they did not need to be in our programs, our service that we were providing. Again, we were like basically their pre-crime division. Is the end goal reform or is the end goal abolition? That should really orient you. And you need to make decisions about who you're going to partner, quote unquote, with and what partnership actually looks like and means within that context. Are you legitimizing the very systems you're trying to destroy? It brings me to something that I'm actually really excited to talk about with all of these experiments. If that is your goal, if, we, if we're if we operating from a place of what we're working towards is abolition, 
our history says that those institutions won't tolerate that easily. Um, and they'll attack these experiments or they'll attack the work you're doing with the intent of destroying it. And that's just very kind of clear cut. And that can be through direct, you know, personal violence that can be through blacklisting, that can be through co-optation, all the mechanisms that they have. What are the mechanisms that we have and or we need to build in order to keep these experiments alive in the face of that repression? Um, and, and whether it's keeping that particular experiment alive or the lessons learned from it um, so that it can be a replicable experiment. Absolutely. Well, you know, the forces that exist to crush us are ever existing. You know, if people aren't seeing that in this moment, they're not paying attention. Look at the massive front lash that has occurred just in the past year to the demand to defund police. Right after the election, who did they trot out immediately in terms of the Democratic Party? They brought Barack Obama and Jim Clyburn out almost immediately to say defund is toxic. Literally, I heard this. This is the equivalent of burn, baby, burn that quote derailed the Black freedom movement in the 1960s. Those folks are loved and beloved in the Black community. And hearing them talk in that way, obviously, is like, well, we shouldn't be pro this. And then you have yesterday an article that came out in the paper saying Nancy Pelosi's midterm strategy is to say that the GOP is defunding the police, which I find hilarious. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's hilarious. But you know what it does, Ooh. though? It tells me something that we should take note of on the left. I am hearing people get really freaked out about like, oh my God, we need to change the language. You know, we let's go to reform the police, right? And I say, what friggin' demand in the last 25 years on the left has had such resonance as defund police, has been able to penetrate the zeitgeist of politics so quickly and so searingly has been so clear as to what it is asking people to do that people are coming up with all other examples and experience, like trying to explain it every other way except defunding the police. Like there's no, right? Like this is an issue that I think is so deeply, really important to keep in mind. This does tie to this concept of repression and co-optation and, you know, what are we going to do? Defund police is such a clear demand it's shaken the, the rafters, you know? And what, when have we been able to do that? In almost anything that has to do with like, a demand that we have on the left, it's on the, some part of the left, because you know, obviously the left is not a monolith and there are plenty of leftists and you see these socialist people talking about, we absolutely need the cops in prisons and, you know, like cops are workers, you know, they're, they're, the arguments aren't like, there's no monolith here and PIC abolitionists are definitely not popular, you know? So I you know <laughs> like, I, I'm not like under any delusions about that. I mean, we, were um, to, we were trying to hang with the popular kids. Yeah, I we mean, definitely trying to get not, we are not popular and the vast majority. Thank of you for the reminder. <laughs> Let's be clear. People are like, oh, it's gotten not so pop. I'm like, you people aren't, you're not living in reality. Okay. You're just not. But I do. And I'm paying attention. And I'm just like, I'm so happy that our demand is being picked up in this way. And that now the Democrats are accusing the Republicans of defunding the police. This is belies the point that they don't know what we're asking for. 
people say this all the time. They're like, well, it's not a clear demand. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. We're it's, asking them. It's, like, it's, <laughs> a, it's a complete sentence. It's, it's like, <laughs> really, really clear. And the fact that the, 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 the Democrats and the Republicans are fighting each other over it means they perfectly understand what the demand is. What the fight is over is to shape the demand as, quote, we are targeting the cops, right? Like, you don't love the police enough. Mm. We love the police more than you do. Support our troops. Right? Support our troops. This is perfect. It is the support our troops of 2020, 2021, you know? And it's, again, it belies people's point when people say, well, people, nobody knows what defund police means. Oh, yes, you do. What you don't want to say is you don't like it. You don't want to do it. You think it's a bad idea, whatever. Like, just say that. But don't say it's hard to understand. No, it isn't. No, it isn't, y'all. And, and to your point, for once, the folks advocating this change are the ones who we get to define the premise. Thank as you. As to all those examples earlier where at a baseline, like, this is a premise we reject for the conversation. So why are we even having the conversation? Yes. And everybody's having to respond to us. Right. Like this is one of the only times where we are not the ones basically having to be running around in a reactionary way. We're just like, y'all, here's the demand. Everybody's like, "Ah!" (laughs) and now like literally organizing their quote, their own strategies around this demand. This is my response to the people on the left who are on the side of like, we need revolution, blah, blah, blah. And you don't, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And they're not going to be, they're not on the front lines of shit. Okay. <laughs> they're in their houses, typing and talking about revolution. So my thing is, my, my response always is to that is like, please take a look around and think, look at how the landscape is different as a result of the work that came into being around this demand. The groundwork, the the years of struggle that brought the demand for, yeah, oh, well, this is just the neoliberal demand of, like, we're just, are you kidding me? Have you not, (laughs) are you watching what is going on around this demand? It's literally, people are losing their shit, (laughs) They are like, we, you can't even say the word. They're saying that crime, quote unquote, is up because people have said the word defund police. What kind of power is it in that word that allows for literally crime to increase? (laughs) They haven't even done it yet. (laughs) They haven't done it yet. Just the thought, just the the speaking. The entire socioeconomic structure has changed because of a hashtag. Just the speaking of the words is enough to shake the foundation of a universe to the point where there's crime, quote unquote, going up. As a and result, it, and it's not economic collapse or the <laughs> people having support over a year where nobody could work and everyone was scared for their lives. To, to to the experiment and like kind of this this point of like the counter experiment or the attack, we usually know there has been effect when they start rushing results like that. I've I've seen three or four platforms that they were just like rereading information. So it wasn't even like they were the ones originating it, just saying like, it hasn't worked. (laughs) Like they, from this, where the places where there were headlines that looked defund adjacent, right? Like there's already, not just that it's bad or that crime, like that it is already not worked, which was the same thing that happened by, I think it was by like February of 2015 when the FBI started using this language of the Ferguson effect. 
you know, once they start making claims before there has literally been enough time to have statistical data, like that's just not how data works. Is, or experiments. <laughs> or experiments work. Um, and so I think that is actually a, a, a big lesson we can take of like once they start claiming something doesn't work before it is tried, that's how you know that there is a retreat. That's right. You've gone to the heart of the thing they want to keep in place. And they have come back stronger than ever to re-legitimize the institution. That's how you know you've disrupted the situation. Like, again, they have to bring out their big guns. Mm-hmm. On the Democratic side. Yeah. Immediately. Obama yeah. had to come out and talk about, well, we got to have different language than defund. Let's talk about reforming the cops, right? Like Black Lives Matter as a movement emerges under Obama. Mm-hmm. People need to think about that. And that point is why where we started is so important for this project is we're not here to talk about alternatives or an enter into the fray on that premise. We're here to talk about people experimenting on what safety in their communities looks like. And that that's not about where your position is on a slogan or whether it's worked or not. That it is not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about in these different locations, in these very specific contexts, here are the things that people have built. Here's what they've learned. And not how can you take that and do the same thing where you live, but what are the lessons, what are the processes we can learn uh, to do this work in a more full and effective way where we are? Yes, absolutely. The premise of this is what is safety for our communities? And these experiments are trying to answer those questions. What is safety for our community? This is my my last one that I have. And I know we got we to gotta wrap. Uh, you get me going every time. I love you so much. <laughs> uh, so to that point of, right, we, we, we have it. We, we're doing it. It is under-resourced. No, no, not under-resourced. David. Unresourced. <laughs> it is unresourced. Let's think about how much they're spending on cops a year, $100 billion. Mm-hmm. And then on caging people, another $100 billion. And then on the military, $800 billion. What on our side of what we're talking about today? Who's getting $100,000 for their experiment? Let's be real about the, the complete lack of resources on the side of the thing that is actually keeping everybody alive and all the resources going into the death-making institutions. That is critical. People have to, if you leave with one thing in this conversation, please leave with that and ask yourself why that is. And so with that reality and with that need to question why that is, I don't want to put you in the place of like explaining this to people. So how you would question or how you would be in conversation with people around this dialectic that I almost with religious fervor believe that we have the collective capacity to do this. Uh, But the way this unresourced infrastructure um, organizes us on a personal level, I've experienced and observed the people who show up for this the most and believe at this on like a lifelong level are overworked, are are drained. You know, you, I know, know more than anybody what it feels like to be pulled in too many different directions, um, to be functioning at a way that actually can disrupt your ability to show up in that human way that actually does bring wellness, protection, safety, healing that that we're talking about and that we're ideating about. So I want to end with this notion of capacity and how do we question or offer or get people to release once you're doing this experiment, once you sign up to be with a doctor or a researcher or whatever the experimenter person is, um, our abolitionist scientists, how should or how do you 
change your thinking about how to organize and experiment with your own personal capacity because I've seen I that disrupt. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's a great question. It is such a good and important question. I want to say what I know is standing in the way of action, but also standing in the way of, you know, sustainable action is capitalism and precarity. People are struggling to survive. Not a single one of us who does this work is paid for it in the sense of like, just what we ought to be able to, like, we ought to be able to survive and do this kind of work in our communities as well. But you're usually doing your job and then doing your work. You're making money to live and pay your rent on all these other ways. And then your work is unpaid. I don't know how to do that differently. I'm not even sure if I want to. But capitalism and precarity is real and a a real barrier. Capacity is also tied to whether you're demoralized or not. There's a thing that can happen where people will say it is as it always has been. Nothing can or will change. And it's it's a deeply seductive thing because it actually gives you a lot of permission to just throw your hands up and keep it moving. And sometimes people need a reason to throw their hands up and keep it moving, either because they're overworked, tired, or because they just don't want to try. So that's a real thing. You have to take so much more energy to do very basic work that that also can feel exhausting and draining. But it's also the other side of that is like, you know, feeling super de-skilled means you ask the question, what do I actually have to offer? And that you feel like you don't have anything to offer. So you sit back. I think we also have this thing where we have to be mindful of the fact that a lot of people just don't know how to plug in to existing work. And part of this experiments project is to be like, there's all this existing work. So maybe if you see something in Detroit and you're in Detroit, you'll pick it up and be like, hey, how can I help? How can I support? So I didn't answer your question about like figuring out balance around capacity, because I don't have any friggin' answers to that. (laughs) I don't know how to do that. Are you questioning it in new ways? No. She's just taking a month off. (laughs) Just observing Black August. I feel it. You know what? You're so funny. I take, I try to take August off every year in some way. Um, And I go away for a part of that time um, to always to the same place. But like the reality is, I, I just can't plug out of my own life. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't really talk about myself deeply in these kinds of ways and I don't like to do it. And I like publicly, this is not me, but I just will say, like, I think for me, the exhaustion of even thinking about like what his balance would be too much. <laughs> that would create some imbalance. <laughs> it would, no, it'd be another, it would be another labor. Okay. And I don't want to do more labor on that. Like, I just want to try to figure out how to take more breaks over time. Like, how do I do that sustainably? And how do I do that in a way that um, doesn't mean that other people have to pick up much more of a burden from me for quote self care? (laughs) Like, you know, (laughs) I love how disgusted you are. (laughs) Self care. Because like people are like, oh, well, I'm doing self-care. But you know what they did? They left a whole bunch of shit for their partner to do. You know, we have to be focused on community care. You are interdependent with other people at every single level. Huge basic tenet of any abolitionist thinking. When we say that somebody else's caging means we are caged too. And that other people's freedom is integral to our freedom. We mean that. That's a core tenet of PIC abolitionist work and vision and politics. So I don't 
I don't understand how people are all like, well, I, you know, I need to just care for myself. And that is politics. Bullshit. <laughs> that is not what Audre Lord was telling you. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> He was just saying, displace all your fucking work onto other people and call it self-care. That's a t-shirt. That's not what Audrey Laura was telling you. I, 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 what Audrey Laura was telling you. Stop it. Yeah, she was also dealing with actual cancer. Okay? She was also sick. Like, this is the point. She wasn't just, like, feeling tired sometimes. This is, all need to stop being ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> if there's one thing that I hope our listeners take, it's Miriam says, stop being ridiculous. <laughs> that's I know that's how you move through the world most is just everyone just stop being ridiculous. Stop being ridiculous. <laughs> I enjoyed that question, that, that response on like a personal relief and, and the, the humor that you brought to it. But just what I'll take in asking other folks is like, how are we wrestling against our own individualism when we're showing up? Yes. For this work? I feel like that's a thread. Yes. If we were more collectivist. Each of us would be much more able to sustain our individual lives. I don't think people get that because this is the U.S. So if we do that, if we actually collectivize care, people will do better individually. Our whole entire society would be so much more transformed. And and again, please don't email or send me a note or tweet me about like romanticizing communities. I am the last person who romanticizes communities. Stop the madness. You've actually am, been in community. I've been in community <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm committed to struggling in community with other people. That's the only thing I can guarantee here. You know, what is it that Morgan Basick has said? You know, the, the very systems we're trying to dismantle live within us. That's why this shit is so hard. The very systems we're trying to dismantle live in our communities, everybody. So no, I'm not trying to do that. But I'm saying collective action, collectiveness, collectivizing care matters a great deal if we are going to like end capitalism and create worlds that are like focus on our livingness and actually be able to sustain a life that has the meaning and isn't going to kill us. All right. I want to just ask before we go, are there any other threads that you feel like for people stepping into this project, stepping into this podcast, they should know about the framework of One Million Experiments or anything that you want to make sure we ask the experimenters over the next six episodes? Thank you. Oh, for- sorry. Over the next five episodes. Or maybe six. We'll go on. <laughs> if, it, if people want to pay, ergo, and all their people do it, then Fund us to do this. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I got to put that in. We're unresourced um, people. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Damon, for pulling that together again. Not under resourced. People need to stop with that. We're unresourced. I'm not broke. I'm unresourced. <laughs> we're un- exactly. We're unresourced. It's an opportunity to actually resource people. Um, okay. So I want to say a couple of things about um, experimentation and creativity and PIC abolition. Experimentation for me and creativity are key to all revolutionary struggles. And we have got to lean into that. PAC abolition to me is a vision um, that we enact through ongoing struggle. It's not actually a blueprint, but it's another world in the making. And we're gonna make our way collectively through experimentation, organizing and rebellion. We're always dismantling and we're always building. And I've learned so much over the years from Ruthie Gilmore's work and example. You know, Ruthie has said often that what the world will become already exists in fragments and pieces. 
and experiments and possibilities. And that quote of hers is so important and it always resonated with me because I've spent the better part of my life making things. And it's not surprising then that I would have found myself attracted to PAC abolition as a vision because abolition ultimately is also about making things. And so I hope that people who are listening to this podcast suite will remember the part about experimentation and creativity being key to all revolutionary struggles. And I hope that people are going to, in their own communities, in their own spaces, in their hyperlocal context, make a bunch of things. Make a bunch of things. See what happens. Try things out. Don't be afraid to do that. And I'm not saying this to you as someone who writes about making things. I'm saying this to you as somebody who has made a lot of things, including a lot of organization. People will often laugh at me about the fact, like, we're going to put the list of all the groups that you've been part of or all the, you know, like that, that it's some kind of indictment somehow. The point is, many containers are needed for different kinds of things. And you shouldn't be afraid to start new containers because new containers are needed. Organizations are dynamic and many of them need to die for new things to come in their place. And these experiments are the same way. It doesn't matter if the experiment lasted a year. You learned something in that year. It doesn't matter if that experiment lasts 10 years. You've learned some things hopefully in those 10 years. This is very important to me. And I think the last thing I want to say Eva had asked a question to me before about like, why are we using the term experiments and not models? It's because I've come to despise the word model. <laughs> <laughs> like many, much of your work has come from like a new, a new solution because you despise something. <laughs> That's why I think we have to ask, you know, why, why experiments? Why are you saying a million different experiments rather than a million different models or whatever the deal is? Um, anyway, it's because I don't like the business speak of it. And it brings to mind words like best practice, which I also hate. And the reality is that we're not looking for one size fits all responses. And also, I don't happen to care about scale or scaling up. People love to talk about scale. How are we going to scale up? Scale? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I've never cared about it. Don't want, I don't care. And this goes back to one of the people who's been on your show a couple of times, Adrian Marie Brown, that was already mentioned by Damon earlier. A lesson that was mentioned uh, in Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategy uh, that's been echoed you know, by many transformative justice practitioners and organizers for generations is that how we are at the small scale is how we are at the large scale. I always think about Mia Mingus, who's a disability justice theorist and TJ practitioner. She often shares this story about how so many people who live with other people don't wash the dishes in their homes, even after they promise to wash dishes. They just won't do it. And she uses it as an example of how we often resist being self-accountable. It's the idea that if we can't be in right relationship at home, we can't be in the broader world. Like we're, if we're not practicing what we're actually preaching and we're not actually trying to do it, what, what are we talking about? We're, how are we going to build these experimental models that are going to actually be able to transform our social relationships with each other in a way that allows us to be able to hold harm very differently and, and to transform that harm ultimately, right? And so the small is all kind of idea is really appealing to me. It doesn't mean that we should ignore structural and systemic oppressions. Of course not. It just means that we need to consistently and on a daily basis practice these new social relations um, that prefigure the world in which we want to live. So 
long story short, I want people to feel free to try lots of different things. And do the dishes. Yes. Yeah, I was about to say, I gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> do the dishes. Folks. <laughs> you know? And I also want people to stop worrying so much about perfect replication of things or following a preset template. Um, so that's why experiments really feels more accurate than model to me. Miriam, thank you so much for one, welcoming us into this project that you've been building with, uh, with some of the folks mentioned and allowing us to have a hand in, in shaping these conversations and for sharing your perspectives and helping us think about how do we even frame these conversations. Thank you. Oh my goodness. Thank you both. All right. Bye. As always, big, big thanks to Miriam Kava for taking the time to chop it up with us. And I think it's such a great way to launch the series and kind of give this idea of experimentation the framing it deserves. I'm curious for you, Eva, in, in listening to that, are there any like major themes that jumped out that you want to make sure we touch on with each of the experiments that we talk to in the coming months? There are some themes that are present throughout all of our work that I think really come to a head in Million Experiments. And Part of this is about collectivity and interdependence, um, which I, you know, Miriam touched upon, but I think is one of the incomplete parts of, you know, this project of the site of the zines of the podcast is, you know, we are not just doing this for show. You know, we're doing this because people ask for examples of work that's going on. Um, and so in good faith, we're giving you all these examples that we've spent a lot of time and money to collect and curate for folks who now need to go do something with it. You know, there's a lot of people who are already doing stuff and there's a lot of people asking what they should be doing. Miriam has these questions that she posts on her um, Twitter thread that I think are relevant here. You know, she asks people when there's a crisis or when there's a conflict going on, when there's something in their community that they want to be a part of, she asks what resources exist so I can better educate myself. Who's already doing work around this injustice? Do I have the capacity to offer concrete support and to help them? How can I be constructive? So part of my hope is that when people listen to these stories of these people who have built amazing things, amazing worlds, amazing experiments, is that they ask, how can I be constructive? And that they can go back to the site and get a lot of examples and how to do exactly that. All this was already there. Like we put a little pretty bow on it for you and like made it easier, but like, okay, <laughs> you got it now. Yeah. And, and I think that instinct actually mirrors some of the like human social dynamics in the dependency on calling the state, right? Like I think in the work in general, there is this like externalization of response, initiation, risk-taking, being the, the, the bat stop of action that is not only just when conflict is happening, right? Like this idea, I need to call someone else. I need you to do this for me. We need permission, like contribute, you know, or, or take Someone should be or, doing something about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, and so like I, I've seen recently folks like commit harm, the harm be named, and they say, and I want an external mediator. And like the assumption is, and someone else is going to go get that person for me or someone else is going to like accommodate that resource. So using that as like an example to hearing, you have to see yourself as a part of world building, of pyramid building, of, of cleaning the water, of like 
taking out your garbage, you know, and, and showing up in a way that is constructive. This is everyone needs to have on their, their gloves and their goggles and their lab coat. There is no like passive spectating. You mean I can't skip this experiment like I skipped my chemistry experiments? <laughs> That's not a possibility. Man, the reason why I'm failing with the metaphors is because I cheated through all my science classes and like <laughs> stopped taking them at like age 15 and a half or 16. And like I, I haven't been in any formal type of science work outside of the social sciences, I say with my finger crossed. <laughs> you were saying we needed to make more room for failure. We really set ourselves up to fail with this central <laughs> metaphor. That was excellent. <laughs> Yeah, that's talk about failure. Let me show you my my progress report from chemistry. <laughs> uh, Will you be a little meta with me? Do we have a, a choice? Let's do it. Do, do, do I have meta consent? <laughs> All right. So not only this podcast, but I think the project One Million Experiments is itself a piece of abolitionist infrastructure not just a platform displaying examples of what could be. And so in curating it and creating it and making decisions and seeing people interacting with it, is it teaching you anything or what is it teaching you about what the resource is aiming to prompt? As you just said, like we need people to do something with it as someone doing something. What are you learning about the doing? You know, what comes to mind is something that I've heard you touch upon, you know, in various ways that I really connect with is there's a lot of personal responsibility in abolition to bring your labor, to bring your, your care, your attention um, to this ethos. I think that what we've learned in, in gathering this information and talking to folks on the ground and really trying to think expansively is, you know, something that we say all the time is that we just really have to be as imaginative and as expansive and as generative as, as possible. One of the things that people ask a lot about presenting their experiments on the site is basically, you know, does this meet your abolitionist like purity threshold bar, et cetera. And it's like, no, 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 no. We want everyone to come and share their experiments. We want you to share your experiments that fail and why they failed and what you would do again better. This is media that we're making for ourselves so that we can really get to this world building. It is supposed to be constructive and it's supposed to be a little bit messy. And we don't want to put anyone on a pedestal. So you don't have to be afraid of falling off that pedestal. Go big, try things. That's how we're going to get where, where we want to go. And that's how people are getting where we want to go right now. Go big and be a little messy. Seems like it should be the tagline for how we podcast. So I feel like we're really <laughs> in the right place here. I feel like I'm in good company then. Yeah. <laughs> And just hearing that, like, and, and engaging and embarking on this collaboration, I'm, I'm very grateful for your work and for your labor. And like, obviously, anybody who knows us and our work, like, knows I'm gushing with, with gratitude and adoration for all Marion contributes to how we can think about the world. Because it's helping me articulate a thing that I've been trying to say that I don't feel has come across clearly, is we only think of abolition usually as again, the alternative. So we imagine it only as like physically engaging in matters of like combat or conflict or like physical violence, right? Like I am the person who steps in or we need another person to call only for that. And actually abolition is how we create all of our things and how are we creating this whole new society, right? And so I think so often people think being an abolitionist only means being a counter cop. Some of that work has to be done and redistributed, but really the learning is like abolition can and should exist in all of the things that we create and in all of our relations and not just when we're thinking about calling 911. 
Yeah, how we do safety is how we do everything, and how we do everything is how we do safety. Surely one of the one million experiments someday is going to be how to devise a system to do the dishes in your household that actually works. <laughs> oh, I think we figured that out. We figured out how to do it. <laughs> I think that's the, that's, at the, that's at the corner of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we can trace all scarcity to dishes in some type of way. Because <laughs> what, what do you do? You buy more forks? Now that's leading into all kinds of... Anyway. Yes. Labor domination about getting someone to do the dish. All right. We, we don't need to. All right. Uh, Capitalism. We, we see you. We see you in the room. <laughs> all right. If that's in the room, then we got to get out of here. Um, we're so excited to launch this show together. Eva, thank you so much for being uh, here today and being such a great partner in this project. I guess the things that we need people to know on your podcast apps, go ahead and subscribe to One Million Experiments. Just type one and then million experiments and you should be able to find it. Um, you can also subscribe to Ergo, our other show, AIRGO, wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out all of the experiments on the site. Eva, what's the URL for that? The URL is millionexperiments.com. And then where else should folks uh, follow to learn more about this project and all the other work of interrupting criminalization? You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at interruptcrim. We're at Ergo Radio on everything, A-I-R-G-O Radio. And we'll be back next month with the second episode of this new experiment we're building together. I can't wait to see the results. Until then. Much love to the people. Peace.